you are seated, please turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. So in chronological order, Nehemiah chapter 2 opens four months later after Nehemiah chapter 1 closes. Remember Nehemiah chapter 1? Nehemiah receives an eyewitness account concerning the state of affairs in Jerusalem and among the Jewish people. For a multitude of days, Nehemiah exalts God. He confesses his own sin and the sins of his people. And then he petitions God, the covenant-keeping God, to make his face shine upon these Jews. Well, chapter 2, after much prayer and fasting, Nehemiah is ready for battle. He finds three battlefronts he's going to take up. First, Nehemiah has to die to himself. This is often the hardest thing. In the first battle, we find that he is fearing a man. And there's a legitimate risk that he might die as he petitions this Persian king, King Artaxerxes, to reverse his prior edict. Nehemiah finds a second battle. He enters in Jerusalem. And there he's confronted with enemy combatants. We'll hear these names over and over again. Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Gershem, the Arab. These power-hungry men repeatedly try to frighten Nehemiah that he would just cower in the corner and give up his righteous cause. Nehemiah fears God. The Almighty, and he will not bow to these petty tyrants, but instead he rebukes them. God has placed it upon Nehemiah's heart to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This is something he cannot do single-handedly. That brings us to his third battle. He's trying to inspire his brethren, who have either been fearful or complacent, to join in the work of rebuilding the wall. You'll see Nehemiah takes a careful survey of the current state of affairs, and then he has to cast a captivating vision for the future in order to gain the support of others. In this chapter, we will learn how Nehemiah is diligent to assess the situation where he finds himself, and then he offers very precise prayers. That the, that he offers precise prayers that he would be able to rebuild the wall. But this world that we live in, remember, like Nehemiah, he was rebuilding walls. This world that we are rebuilding, the son came to die for and reclaim for his own. Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done here on earth, even as it is in heaven. Say it again, right? It rolls off our mind. Jesus prays that his will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. How is it done in heaven? It's done perfectly. That's, what is, that's how we're to pray. Before diving into the text, let us pray to our Lord with the precise prayers, like Nehemiah prayed, that he would give us wisdom as we take on the text. Let's pray. Gracious God, through your Son, you have made known your will to us. There's no doubt. We pray that every knee would bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. Help us to learn from Nehemiah that we may carry out this mission. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, 
when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in the king's presence. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Since you are not sick, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, and I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste, and, is, and the, its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask you send me to Judah, to my father's tomb, to the city of my father's tomb, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set, set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they may permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the, let, the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army with horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horite, Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite officials heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem, was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate, to the serpent well, to the refuse gate, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates which were burned with fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up by night in the I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall, then I turned back and entered the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had, what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been, a, had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that had, he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed. They laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we are his servants. We as servants will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. 
This us, thus ends the reading of God's word. Nehemiah chapter 2 opens with in the month of Nisan, which is four months past the month of Chislev. That's the time for the events of Nehemiah chapter 1. After learning about the distressful situations in Jerusalem, bathing the situation in prayer, four months later, Nehemiah has the chance to act, has the opportunity to act. We learn as the cupbearer, as the king's cupbearer, he had never been sad in the king's presence before. To do so would break with, would break with court etiquette and could result in his death. Think of this. The king was busy ruling his empire, and he was faced with all kinds of difficult situations on a daily basis. The last thing he needed was to be bothered with some personal matter of his servant. Yet, Nehemiah took the risk. To make matters even more challenging, Nehemiah was essentially asking the king to reverse a prior decision, a prior decision from Ezra that we read in Ezra chapter 4. Remember, in Ezra 4, the local Persian officials send this frightening letter to Artaxerxes informing them the Jews are rebuilding, and if they rebuild, harm will come. They will rebel. The king quickly issues King Artaxerxes, the same king, quickly issues an edict to tell them to stop construction. He's trying to quell any potential rebellion. Yet, in submission to God, Nehemiah wants to reverse the earlier edict. He has a tall mountain to climb from a human perspective. So in verse 2, the condition of Nehemiah's heart overflows, and it shows up in his sad face, which causes the king to question him. Catch what it said? Nehemiah becomes dreadfully afraid. For he knows that he has crossed the Rubicon River. And like Julius Caesar, there's no going back. It's either victory or certain death. Nehemiah is in, he's all in, and he charges forward. But, see how he does this. He's showing himself to be as shrewd as a serpent, and yet as innocent as a dove. One can only imagine over the past four months, Nehemiah has been praying and praying for wisdom and planning his method of attack. So, as Nehemiah seeks to reverse, his, to reverse the king's edict concerning the rebuilding of Jerusalem, notice, he never mentions Jerusalem by name, which was surely in the, first, the king's first edict. Instead, he refers to, it, refers to it as the place of his father's tomb, that was the city that had its gates burned with fire. In general, kings were concerned about their legacies. So they regularly honored their fathers, hoping that their sons would follow suit and honor them. Nehemiah is playing to the king's sympathies in order to accomplish his task. In verse 4, the king's initial response is favorable, which now the door is cracked and Nehemiah rushes in with very particular requests. The king could have equally said at this time to Nehemiah, what does this have to do with me? Get out of here. I have no time for your issues. But Nehemiah has prevailed, and like a good chess player, Nehemiah has not only planned his first move, but now he's carefully planned his subsequent moves. He does not need to go away when the king asks him, what do you want? Well, king, let me, I'll come back to you. He strikes why the iron's hot. In verse 6, the king wants to know how long he'll be gone on his journey. 
Nehemiah's planned ahead. It gives him a very specific time, which the text does not give us. Throughout the book, we'll find that Nehemiah spends 12 years in Jerusalem. Later in the book, Nehemiah puts aside his duties as the king's cupbearer and is appointed the governor. So, he's appointed the governor of the region which contains Jerusalem. I suspect that, in, that Nehemiah initially said something like he might be gone for months or maybe a year, but then God has expanded this assignment to take up the 12 years. Nonetheless, Nehemiah was prepared with specific requests on the time that he was away. Nehemiah was not a guy planning some half-baked scheme. Instead, he had counted the cost, and it was clear, and he was clear concerning the needs, his battle provisions. In verse 7, consider what he does. He asked the king for letters of passage through the various territories so he will not be detained and waste time. Next, Nehemiah petitions the king for another letter, granting him permission that the Asaph must, must give timber so that he can, he can make construction. In all this, Nehemiah is precise with his, with his requests. He is bold, for he knows that this is the work of the Lord. As you see these specific requests being granted by the Persian king, remember, that they are simply answers to earlier prayers that God, that Nehemiah has been making to God Almighty. Our God does more than we could ever imagine or ask for. Look to verse 9. Nehemiah didn't ask for this. He didn't ask, yet the king provides a military escort for his travels. Go back to the book of Ezra. Remember when Ezra goes back to Jerusalem? He rejected the military escort. And now Nehemiah accepts it. Two godly men taking different paths. Which one was right? As Christians, we all often find comfort in uniformity. There we think we, will be, we are safe, and there we think we find godliness. There is a mindset that says, says we should all use the same curriculum to educate our children, we should all avoid the same shows, you know, the R-rated ones, the R-rated movies. We should all read the same books, and we should all wear the same clothes. In thinking this way, we assume godliness is formulaic. Do certain things and avoid other things. Guess what? This is pharisaical thinking. Instead, God calls us to seek wisdom for each set of circumstances, and this will result in each of us and people doing different things, like Ezra rejecting the military escort and Nehemiah accepting it. I would say both decisions, both decisions of Ezra and Nehemiah were, were motivated to glorify God, and thus they were both good. Ezra told the king that God Almighty was their protection, and then demonstrated so by rejecting the military escort. Now, imagine Nehemiah riding into Jerusalem with this military escort provided by the king. Surely the military escort would be useful for getting the attention of the Jews. What is going on? What's happening? It would also legitimize Nehemiah's work with the local officials. That, and they would know that Nehemiah had been dispatched by the king and they should tread carefully. Indeed, the local officials, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem took notice and they were deeply disturbed. With the king's full support, 
king's full support, this man was seeking the well-being of Jews. Sanballat appears to be a Moabite, while Tobiah is an Ammonite. Think back in your Jewish history, biblical history. These men are from nations coming from Lot's descendants. They're coming from Lot's descendants. You remember how those came about? They came from incestuous relationships with, the, with Lot's daughters and himself to produce two sons and two nations. Geographically, Mo, Moab and, and Ammon were to the north and to the east of Jerusalem. The other official is Geshem. He's an Arab. Arabs were located south and east of Jerusalem. Now, now that Nehemiah, a Jew, had come with the strength of the Persian king, they could no longer freely pillage or control these Jews. After arriving in Jerusalem, Nehemiah remains true to form. Think about his planning before. What's he do? He, ex he makes an assessment of his next battle. Instead of going off half-cocked, he takes three days and he makes a careful assessment of the walls of Jerusalem. Consider the next battle he's got. It's to win the hearts and minds of those in Jerusalem to join in the work of rebuilding. After a careful assessment, he can firmly, he can firmly answer any of their objections about, how, about the difficulty of the work. In verse 12, he makes an assess, assessment at night so as not to draw attention to himself. His assessment is very detailed and very precise, noting the condition of each gate, like the petitions that he'd been making to the, the king and to God. After making a careful assessment, we can only imagine that Nehemiah offers more precise prayers. His next battle is to cast a vision to rebuild Jerusalem, and so win the hearts of those in Jerusalem to join the effort. With their help, Without their help, this task cannot be complete. To show that this is a work of God, Nehemiah tells a story. He tells a story, and we can only assume this story, he's just recounting what happened in Nehemiah chapter 1, how men came to Jerusalem, how they told him of the situation, of his prayers, his petitions, what God has placed upon his heart, and the favor God gave him with the king. They respond and how the king responds to these petitions. You want to win the people's heart? Tell them a story. Invite them to join the work. Tell them of God's work so far. Inspire them with a picture of the glorious future. Nehemiah must have told them how working together they can rebuild the wall and do it in record time. In fact, we'll see that in coming chapters. His story gave those who were desperate in Nehemiah chapter, in Nehemiah 8, verse 18, we see he's won the third battle. The people agree. They agree to rise up and to build. For, for their eyes have seen the good work and the worthy work. Look again the local officials, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. They seek to discourage the people. Don't. They seek to discourage the people from doing this. One, one can imagine them saying, are you serious? Look with your eyes. Look at the walls. <clears throat> They're in shambles. You're a poor people. You're few in number. These wicked men would play to their self-doubts. But the wall was not going to be rebuilt because of their strength. It was going to be rebuilt because of God's good hand on them. The local tyrants were seeking to be lord of all. You know what they wanted? 
They wanted a discouraged. They wanted a docile, and they wanted a dependent people. To rob them of hope, these tyrants seek to incite fear by saying, will you rebel against the king? The people knew if this, rebelling, this rebuilding was perceived as a rebellion, they would face the king's army. What did that mean? These trained soldiers would come upon them, likely kill them, kill their wives, and kill their children. Nehemiah had been clear that he and the Jews were seeking to serve the king of kings. The heavenly king has had their full adoration. They will not fear anyone, not even the Persian king and not his army either. Why? God had their back. Our covenant-keeping God will be true to his word. And over these past four months, God has offered many words. Nehemiah has offered many words in prayer to God. He's exalted God's greatness. He's confessed his own sins. He's petitioned God with specific prayers. But to these petty tyrants, Nehemiah has very few words. Consider the mistake we made, we make often. He has very few words with these wicked men. He does not see this situation as some grand misunderstanding. Let's get together in the Rose Garden and have a beer summit. Let's just talk this out. Surely we can find some common ground. Talking with enemies of God will only lead to compromise and capitulation. Instead, he understands that these men are wicked, which is to say they do not serve God Almighty. They serve themselves, and thus their interests are not with God. In verse 20, Nehemiah boldly answers them. He says that he and the Jews will build, and these tyrants have no right to intervene, for this is not their land of inheritance. What are we to do with this part of Nehemiah's story? There's temptations to simply say, oh, what a nice story, and file it away and say, God is faithful. Of course he's faithful. But what are we to do? After 70 years in captivity, Nehemiah knew. He knew God. He knew that he was one to keep covenant and that he would return a repentant people to the land, that they might be holy and a special people enjoying his blessing. He knew the land was in shambles. He knew that God's will was to rebuild. So because he knew all these things, he was bold to act. In like manner, what do we know? We know that God has claimed this world as his own. And that his will is that his will should be followed here on earth, even as it is in heaven. We know that his will is that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the, sea, as the water covers the seas. What I'm speaking of is Christendom. Christendom 1.1 permeated Europe. It spread to the U.S. It's being dismantled before our eyes. And as it's being dismantled, we should remember our sins and our need to repent. As we repent, it's time to build Christendom 2.0. We know this is God's will. Will you act boldly? The first Christendom took a thousand years to build, but it brought blessing upon blessing upon people who were once in darkness. Will you join this grand project to rebuild? Like Nehemiah, will you pray and fast 
when you see the world in distress? Like Nehemiah, will you pray to say, Lord, what is my role? Do you struggle to know what your role is? Well, look around. Look around and see the brokenness and ugliness closest to you. If it be your family, rebuild there. Proclaim the gospel to your neighbor. Support the ministries of this church or propose a new ministry. Start a school, a homeschooling co-op. What do you think is needed? Start there, bathing it in prayer. Like Nehemiah, our first battle. Our first battle may be blatant fear. Nehemiah was exceedingly fearful, it says. He was a fearful of the king and the king's response. So our first step in action is often to overcome fear and to live by faith. You might tell yourself, I've never done this before. I do not know what I'm doing. Or it's really hard. I'm afraid to fall. Be inspired by Nehemiah, who sacrificed himself, who stepped up, and his courage inspired others to step up. You might say, to be bold and courageous, it's not my thing. It's just not my thing. I prefer others to lead. Saints of God, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember what it says, that spirit is not timid. It is bold. Lean into that spirit. Another harsh reminder is cowards. Remember, cowards will not inherit the kingdom of God. In Christ, with his spirit, you and I are no longer cowards. We're warriors of Christ. Once those fears have passed of not caring about the response of men, petition God with precision. Avoid those broad prayers. You know, Lord, I pray you end global poverty. Lord, I pray for world peace. I pray for the economy. Avoid those prayers. Leave those kinds of prayers to the beauty pageant contestants. Instead, follow Nehemiah's example. Take careful assessment of the situation around you and make prayers that God, make highly specific prayers to God. Nehemiah needed letters. He prayed for letters. He asked for letters. He needed timber. He needed people to rebuild. Petition God in these specific ways. Pray. Pray that God would give, provide Christ Church Owensboro, what? Its own building. A place to organize and launch our attack. Pray that God would rise up amongst us leaders to help with organization, to train and lead and take on various charges. Pray that God would give us a unified vision for the future, that we could inspire others. Pray that God would add to our numbers, those skilled in music, to make his worship more glorious and fitting. Pray that God would provide godly spouses for our children, that future marriages would do what? Produce godly offspring, for this battle is generational. And may it continue long after we're gone. Pray for faithful imaginations, not to see the world as it is, any fool can do that, but to see what the future could be according to God's word and his promises. So, with God-inspired imagination, may we learn to tell a good story, a new reality to captivate hearts, to inspire others, including our own children, to join the work. In coming weeks and subsequent chapters, we will see how hard 
this rebuilding work was. It required sacrifice. So as we start the work, even as we have with this formation of this church 10 months ago now, there will be doubts. There will be discouragements. We will find enemies saying, they're such a small group. This means nothing. They can't survive. It'll amount to nothing. They will laugh at us. They will despise us. Yet if this is the work of the Lord, and I think it is, there's no stopping it. When we hear from scoffers and scorners, respond in two ways. First, be encouraged. For the work, for if the work were nothing, the enemy wouldn't care. Rejoice when there are those laughing at you. You know why? Because you're at their gates and they are trying to discourage you. They are nervous. They're trying to discourage you like they tried to discourage Nehemiah. Remember, their laugh is a nervous laugh. They are really concerned. What are you doing? Notice, Nehemiah didn't spend much time with the scorners, those scoffers directly. He just offered them a few bold words. Do not let the wicked of this world cause you anxiety or fear. Instead, they will laugh at you. But more importantly, remember Psalms 2. God is laughing at them, at their foolishness. He will bring them down. He will bring them down. So fear, so keep up the godly work to bring order to this world, to your life, and to the world around you. Fear not. Will you join me as we pray for boldness when others fear? Will you offer to God specific prayers, seeking battle provisions that we might fight to build, rebuild for his kingdom? As you step up, know that God will be glorified. Others will be inspired. This is hard work. I'm asking for hard work, but it's good work. Let's pray. Sovereign God, you have placed us in this time and in this place where we see the world crumbling around us. You have brought us together to worship, to serve you. Father, we pray that you would unite us as we offer ourselves to this work. Give us courage, give us wisdom, give us great joy. This we pray in Jesus' name and to his glory. Amen.